Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this LSE public event. My name is Minoush Shafiq, and I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And I'm delighted to welcome you to this talk today by Richard Haas on his new book called The World. I'm especially delighted to welcome you this week because this week we're welcoming back our students from all over the world. And for those of you who are not LSE students, uh, the school's strategy for the coming decade is called Shape the World. So today's topic couldn't be more perfect. Now, Richard uh, needs very little introduction, but I will give a brief one. He has been studying the world and helping others to understand it for most of his career. He's published 14 books on American foreign policy, and he's also been unusually both a, a, a student of the world, but also a practitioner of diplomacy for many decades. He's held a wide variety of senior roles in the Department of State, the Department of Defense, and in the US Senate. And from 2001 to 2003, he served as the Director of Policy Planning in the United States State Department, working with the then Secretary of State, Colin Powell. More recently, he has led the Council of Foreign Relations for the last 18 years, one of the leading independent foreign policy think tanks in the world, created to help people better understand the world and the foreign policy choices facing the US and other countries. Now, I, I think it's fair to say he's written this book, which is simply called The World, uh, with a little bit of sense of a frustration that despite all the globalization that we've experienced in recent years, global literacy is actually not very high. And at a time when nationalism and inward-looking policies are, are in the ascendance, it seems ever more important to do something about that. It's especially problematic at a time of great flux when the text now added something I didn't expect of the world order are shifting beneath mm -hmm. our feet. And at this critical juncture in history, the world could go either way toward international anarchy or toward international stability and order. And so it's especially important at this time to understand the world and we couldn't have anyone better than Richard Haas to help us do that. I'm going to turn to Richard now, who'll speak for about 15, 20 minutes. And then Peter Truvowitz, Professor of International Relations at the LSE, will join me for a conversation with Richard. And then we'll open it up to questions from the audience. Please put your questions in the chat. Uh, and Peter will moderate the, the question and answer session. So, Richard, over to you. Well, thank you, Manoush. It's always wonderful to participate in events with institutions I didn't go to. So I think it, it shows the open-mindedness of LSE to let this uh, American who went to Oxford uh, have a chance to, to say a few things. Though in my defense, I did spend several years, as you know, working down the street from you and was a frequent visitor to the Economist bookstore there. Uh, I'm going to talk about the world in two senses. I'm going to start talking about the real one, the actual one. And then I will segue somewhere along the way into talking about uh, the book and why I wrote it and what's the connection between, between the two. But let me start off with the world itself. It's a good week to do it. It's the 75th anniversary of the, uh, of the United Nations. Uh, no one needs any reminder that we're, we're meeting in the midst of a, of a global pandemic, which again uh, highlights how much the world affects all of our, our destinies and our, and our lives. But I really want to make two points about the contemporary world uh, to start with. 
the first, and here we are, it's what, 75 years after the end of World War II, roughly 30 years after the end of the Cold War. What one thing we're seeing, despite uh, some of the optimistic pronouncements made three decades ago, is we're clearly seeing a significant revival of geopolitics and great power rivalry. Another way to think about it is rather than the end of history, we're seeing the return or revival of history. We see it most acutely in the U.S.-Chinese relationship, but also China's relationship with Japan, with Europe, with India, essentially with all the other major powers of the day. We're obviously seeing it in the relationship with, with, with Russia, and we're seeing geopolitics in, in so many ways, the skirmishes along the India-Chinese uh, border and so forth. So again, the idea that historical jockeying would, would end uh, we've got the structural realities of rising China. I'll come back in a few minutes to the, the question of where the United States uh, is. Uh, we've also got a world where there's more capacity of various sorts and more hands than in any other time in, in, in modern history. Many of these hands are states, but not all of them. A lot of non-state actors have capacity, and a lot of these capacities are military. But again, not always capacity in, in many forms. So this is a world of uh, distributed power, and it's a, war, war, a world in which we're seeing uh, all sorts of revival of, of great power uh, rivalry, competition, ideological, military, uh, economic, and geopolitics more broadly. That, that's my first point. That Again, the idea that somehow history would end, that the modern era would, would constitute a departure uh, for those of you who uh, held those hopes sincerely, uh, I'm sorry to have to be the bearer of, of bad tidings. Ain't going to happen. What's new about this period, though, is something else. It's, it's not that geopolitics uh, have ended. What's new about this era of history, and it really distinguishes it from all previous eras, I would argue, is the emergence and the primacy of global challenges. Globalization is in many ways, the defining characteristic of this era. Or if you disagree with that, it's at least the distinguishing characteristic of this era. Or in some ways, the way to put it would be if there's now familiar challenges that are reviving, there's these new challenges. One is obviously infectious disease, though we have had it uh, before. Secondly, climate change. Uh, when I was a student in your country in the, in the 70s, issues like climate change simply didn't exist. It wasn't that climate change didn't exist, but it was in its nascent stages. It wasn't on the, the foreign policy or international relations uh, agenda. We, we thought a little bit about environment, but not climate change. Cyberspace was not a domain that had emerged yet. So the question of the regulation or behavior of cyberspace was not an issue. We were in the early stages of uh, proliferation. Most of the challenges in proliferation were vertical. The horizontal ones hadn't fully emerged. Global terrorism had not yet emerged. Terrorism was largely, was largely uh, local and so forth. Uh, the world uh, economy was expanding. Trade was uh, expanding. The pushback hadn't, yielded, hadn't really gained a whole lot of uh, momentum. So what strikes me about this era is the, the impact, the influence of a range of global phenomena all these manifestations of, of globalization. And in every case, I'm struck by the gap between the intensity of the phenomena and in many ways, the risks that it poses and the, and the nature of the response. There's an enormous gap at the global level. And again, I'll be, a, I'll be the bearer of bad tidings now a second time. 
all of you who constantly use the phrase international community, I would essentially urge you caution. I think the whole idea of international community, it's a valuable one, but it's really an aspirational one. There isn't yet much in the way of international uh, community. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing it when it comes to the world dealing with infectious disease or with uh, climate or with cyberspace or just about any other global uh, phenomena. There's instead this rather large gap between the, the challenges and the willingness or ability of the most important actors on the world stage, uh, nation states, to, to, to come together, to work together, to meet these challenges, even though it's in their self-interest to do so. And indeed, uh, a striking amount of history is when entities don't act in their own self-interest. But I digress. So you've got these two challenges, one very familiar, one somewhat newfangled. What's happening, though, is a third thing as well, which is the United States and what's going on with American foreign policy. And I would simply say one way to understand the United States over the last three quarters of a century is we were the principal architect, in many cases working with the UK, but also others. And we were clearly the general contractor. We were primus ante Paris in setting up and operating the global system, the institutions, the alliances, all the, the structures that came out of the post-World War II era, and in many cases are still with us today, even if in... Uh, evolved uh, form. And what's so different about the United States over the last few years, in particular the last three and a half years, but one could see roots of it before then, going back to the financial crisis, going back to the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, is we are seeing a rethinking in the United States, both at the elite level, but also at the popular level, of really the entire concept of American leadership, of American activism in the world. Many of the what we thought were the givens or basics or assumptions of American foreign policy that have informed it over the last 30 or 75 years can no longer be assumed. Uh, and that is what to me is so interesting is that at a time of the reemergence of traditional problems, the emergence of all sorts of new problems, the country which has been as responsible or more responsible for whatever order in the world has existed over the last three quarters of a century, essentially is having second thoughts or third thoughts about its willingness to play this role. And again, it's grown more intense under the current administration. You had an example of it yesterday in Mr. Trump's uh, brief but uh, intense statement at the United Nations. Uh, we see it with his questioning of alliances and America's alliance commitments. The United States has withdrawn from any number of international arrangements, be they institutions or, or agreements, a real sense in the country that uh, the United States has got overextended in many ways in recent uh, decades. Indeed, it was announced yesterday, I think it was, the first debate, first presidential debate taking place uh, on the 29th of this month. There's six subjects. Not one of them is explicitly foreign policy. And again, it, it just shows in some ways where the country's collective head is and, and, and is not. And I think that is uh, what frames the, the world situation, the, these, three, these three developments. And it's, it's the combination of the three, and the last one in particular, that led me to write this book by the name of the world. Uh, what, it, what it turns out is that I think in the United States right now, there is very little appreciation of the significance of the world. I find this somewhat odd after 9-11, given COVID-19, 
uh, given climate change, but, but there you have it. People in many ways don't see the connection and the importance between what goes on in the world and what is happening in the United States. They also don't see in many ways the relationship in the other direction, the significance of what the United States doesn't, doesn't do for the world. And the fact that in a sense, there's a feedback loop between the world and the United States. And to, the bottom line is what happens in the world matters a great deal. It affects security, prosperity. Uh, it affects the American way of life. Yet there's a real discounting, a real disinterest in, in, in what goes on in the world in a real sense that the United States, among many people, doesn't have the, the quote unquote luxury to stay heavily involved in the world, that those resources need to be better, uh, need to be spent uh, essentially at, at home. And this, by the way, is uh, something about bipartisan uh, uh, view. This is not simply Mr. Trump. We, again, we saw elements under the previous administration and we see it in polling uh, more broadly. And I think COVID and the economic dislocation, it's called the racial divide, will will re uh, will reinforce uh, some of those uh, some of those thinking some of that thinking in the uh, United States. Why, why I think this is, and I'll stop with this point, is that if you come of age in the United States, it's not that and just recently foreign policy has gotten something of a bad name because of things like Vietnam or more recently Iraq and Afghanistan, but you can graduate from virtually any American high school as well as American colleges and universities. And while in some cases or most cases, these courses about the world are offered, they are not required. So most people leave their campuses essentially illiterate about the world. Then obviously those who don't go to these schools uh, aren't exposed, don't even have the chance of being exposed to these issues. If you watch the American nightly news programs, it's not, it's not quite up to BBC standards. And most nightly news, the half hour program won't include much of anything about the world. There are quality newspapers in the United States, obviously, but most people uh, aren't spending their days reading them. On the internet, there's a lot of valuable information about the world. The problem is on the internet, there's also a lot of inaccurate information about the world. And there's no one pointing out saying, read this, ignore, ignore that. So for all these reasons, I think uh, Americans in many ways don't have a deep understanding of, of the world. Many other people around the world don't. And my concern is a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge will tend to reinforce ideas of isolationism. If you don't see why the world matters, you're more likely to, to discount it. I also think it leaves citizens more vulnerable to, to arguments that they ought to push back against. Uh, unilateralism. We heard a lot about unilateralism yesterday. But if I'm right and global challenges are central, then people have to understand, at least in principle, the value, the value of multilateralism. But if one doesn't have an understanding of the world and its impact and how foreign policy can shape the world, then that instinct won't, won't be there. So the reason I wrote what you all would call a primer we all would call a primer. And don't, please don't ask me why the pronunciation is differently because I have, I have no idea uh, why that and how that uh, is. But is that so many people in my country and other countries need it? Because again, we're, uh, we've arrived at a period of history where global realities uh, are just that, the realities. Now, how we respond to them, that's where the choice comes in. That's, the, that's a matter for, for public policy. It needs to be and should be. Uh, but I, uh, I'm sort of in the, if you will, the tradition of Thomas Jefferson, 
what democracies require is an informed citizenry. And if, if we're not going to get it just automatically or naturally through media or through schools, then I think it's, it becomes something of, a, of an obligation to try to, to put it out there. And that's what, uh, that's what I'm trying to do. Thank you, Richard. Uh, let me start and then I'm going to turn to Peter. I wanted to explore more your, your, your notion of rethinking American leadership and, uh, and this perception in the U.S. that is, as you say, bipartisan, that American leadership on the international stage has been costly and burden, burdensome. But there's a sort of another view, which is actually the U.S. has benefited enormously from the post-war order benefited economically, politically, and socially. But those benefits haven't been shared within the U.S. because of the failure of domestic policy. And that U.S. foreign policy, I mean, there are many issues we could just, but it wasn't the fact that the U.S. was internationally engaged that was the problem, but it was the U.S.'s own domestic policies that meant that those benefits of engagement were captured by a very small proportion of the population. What would you say to that? And would, would, if you believed in that argument, is there a kernel of hope that a different domestic set of policies might, in, might result in greater U.S. international engagement? So let me first disagree with what you said, and then I'll agree with it, just to cover all my bases. Uh, I'll disagree with it because I think the benefits that have accrued to Americans and to the United States from the last 75 years are enormous. This is the first period of, of history where there hasn't been a uh, great power competition that's led to war. The average standard of li uh, living in the United States, GDP per capita has gone up enormously. Uh, technology introductions, innovations have benefited all sorts of uh, Americans. The average American compared to 75 years ago, the average lifespan is about a decade uh, longer. We live in a world in which democracy went from being an exception to uh, quite, quite, quite common Americans are, have been able, again, put aside the last six, eight months, but have enjoyed all sorts of access to the world and so forth. This has been an extraordinary period of history. Indeed, it's been something of a golden age. I think in some ways, almost like oxygen, it's so diffuse and it's so much a part of existence that people don't notice it and don't value it. Indeed, one of my complaints with the administration, which this administration, which seems so intent on disrupting a lot of its inheritance is it doesn't understand or value its inheritance. It takes it for granted. And what I try to point out is, no, this is not the natural way of history. Uh, the world is not, to use Headley Bull's model, is not naturally a society. It does lean more towards the anarchical. And it's the United States, which has pushed back uh, against that. And it has helped build something of an international uh, society to the extent one exists. So I do think those benefits have been widespread. Now, in the United States, have there, is there a problem with, with inequality and so forth? Of course. But I wouldn't blame that to, for, on globalization. Uh, I would blame that more than anything on things like uh, the, the state of American K through 12 education. Think about it. The one thing every American is exposed to is they have to go to school essentially from the ages of 6 through 16. That is our one chance to really provide a ladder for Americans to, to give them the skill set they need to get going in, in life. To, uh, and the problem is that too many of our public schools are terrible. The way we fund our schools, the way we run them, you know, as you know, people, as Condi Rice sometimes points out, 
show me the zip code, show me where someone lives, and I can tell you a lot about the quality of their education and a lot about how much opportunity. I think the real problem in America is the American dream has become more of a dream rather than, than a reality. And I, I think some of it or a significant amount has to do with the quality of uh, education. There's other reasons to do with uh, health care, with uh, nutrition. We, we can go through it. Uh, a lot of other problems in our, our society. And I think it actually highlights the relationship between what goes on at home and what goes on with a country's foreign policy. What worries me is that our domestic, I'm not sitting here arguing that domestic challenges aren't real. I don't think for the most part they, were they, they have been created or exacerbated by our international involvement. Uh, though our, but our international involvement is increasingly blamed for it. So take job loss, something you all study at LSE. You know, the lion's share of job loss is not because of offshoring or, or imports. The lion's share of job loss is because of productivity increases, innovation. But trade is blamed for it. The benefits are free trade or diffuse. But those who blame trade, the, you know, this or that you know, plant that had to close because things and the plant went to Mexico, the opposition to free trade is is intense. So again, I point part of the pro I point my finger in part at the lack of understanding. And so when politicians stand up and say uh, immigration is bad or our involvement in the world costs more than it benefits us, so on and so forth, uh, my concern is that most Americans don't have the the background to understand that what they're being told is not necessarily. Uh, is not necessarily accurate. 30 more seconds. We have got, though, to fix our domestic ills, or we won't have the bandwidth to play a large global role. And that's the lesson I take, particularly the next president. If you look at what he's going to inherit, the domestic pressures are going to be so acute that we're going to have to do those. Now, the world's not going to give us a pause to put ourselves in order and say, oh, yeah, you Americans, come back in five years after you've sorted yourself out. History doesn't work that way. But we are going to have to find a way to fix ourselves at home. At the same time, we stay, we stay involved abroad. Peter, over to you. Well, thank you, Manoush, and, and great to be with you, Richard, today. We have, looks like we have over 500 people on the platform, which is great. And uh, let me give a special shout out to uh, LSE's fabulous IR students, many of whom are on the platform. It's great to have you here. We've already got a number of questions um, rolling in. Um, I'm, I'm tempted to follow up on Manusha's line of questioning, Richard, because, um, you know, it, it strikes me that um, on, uh, concerning um, uh, America's retreat, before turning to, um, to the questions uh, that are coming in, it, it strikes me that the gap that you are talking about is partly a function in the United States of um, at the same time that the U.S. was trying to push the envelope internationally, both with respect to security policy in the Middle East, but also with respect to um, international trade and capital mobility, the welfare state in the United States will back. So that the gap is partly a function of benefits and um, things that people could assume in another era are no longer there. And I, I think this is where some of the frustration that we see in the industrial parts of the United States 
that 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 really helps explain why Trump got the kind of traction he did. And so it seems to me that partly what needs to happen, but I'd like to hear your thoughts about it, is there has to be something very programmatic on the domestic side. Education is part of it. But, um, you know, I think people's basic needs are not being met. Look, I agree. And one of my previous books was called Foreign Policy Begins at Home. And my whole argument was that unless we do more to address the, the challenges at the home front, again, we wouldn't have the cohesion as a society. We wouldn't have the resources. We wouldn't have the competitiveness. And again, we wouldn't have the bandwidth right. to be involved in the world. So I agree. And there's any number of things. Uh, I mentioned K through 12 education. Another is lifelong education. If the average person is going to have a 40 to 50 year career, you've got to assume that there's going to be any, you know, there's going to be frequent technological disruption. But we've got to have the mechanisms for retraining and education along the, along the way. We've got to have portability of adequate social safety net, beginning with, 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 with health care. Uh, we've obviously got a better infrastructure so people don't spend so much time getting to and from uh, uh, work. Oh, environmental issues are obviously important. You can't have a society that's dealing with the kind of fires and floods and storms that, that we are dealing with. We've got to fix Washington. We have reached a level of political dysfunctionality that is, well, uh, dysfunctional. And we can't address a lot of our, our challenges. Indeed, increasingly, lots of issues are getting pushed to the state and local level because their things tend to get done much more than they get done at the federal level. We've made real progress over the last decade or 15 years on the energy front, I would say. Where things have gotten worse in recent years is obviously on the indebtedness front. And I worry about, so I'm not arguing with you. We right. have got a, a, both politically and objectively, we have got to deal with a, a lot of these domestic challenges. The problem is, I'll be honest, there's very little uh, consensus. Yeah. And we're on a, an unsustainable trajectory right now in terms of entitlements, in terms of uh, debt, and we've got the immediate enormous needs that grew out of COVID. So we have, if you will, strategic problems as well as immediate problems. Mm -hmm. And dealing with all this is uh, at a time of such political division, which, right. by the way, is likely to be exacerbated rather than resolved by the upcoming election. Right. That's a tall order. Yeah. Okay, look, I'm going to turn to some of the questions. We've got great questions coming in and they're like, you know, they're going to take you all over the place. Um, that's what we do at the LSE. Um, one of these questions comes in from Manan Shah, uh, who is an incoming student um, uh, in the law school here uh, at the LSE. Here's the question. And it actually, it's very timely because it seems to me it picks up on Macron's point yesterday at the UN. His speech didn't get the same kind of attention that Xi Jinping and Trump's speech did, but he really, he, he went out of his way to say, hey, look, you know, we better not get trapped by the U.S.-China competition. There needs to, we need to be outside of this or the global challenges that you are raising will never be addressed. Here, she says, at the beginning of the world, your book, you note that America has a, such a large presence that all geographic overview chapters in the book feature the U.S.'s lasting impact. If you were to write a sequel in 15 to 20 years, do you think it would still be the case? Or will the next few decades give way to rising China and its influence across the world? And while you think about that, here's another one different 
a pedagogical question. This comes from Chris Martin, a sociologist at Georgia Tech. One of the things about LSE is we bring people in from all over the world. His question is this. How did you frame the sections of this book to be engaging to college students? In other words, what different techniques did you use or try, and how did you figure out what was the most engaging? I ask this as a college lecturer, and I suppose that this is just an opportunity for you to draw on your experience speaking around the world and so forth. Okay, let me deal with both questions. The if I were to rewrite this in 10 or 15 or 20 years. One is I don't necessarily take as a given that China continues to rise. And if it does, it's that I'm confident it can't rise in anything like the trajectory it's risen at over the last 20 years. Uh, so I, I think, but I think there are big questions about China's political future, its economic future, environmental future, probably above all its demographic uh, future. So I, I just don't extend that, that line. Second of all, I'm not sure about China's ability to translate whatever increased strength it has into influence. Indeed, look at what's happened in recent uh, months. China has essentially alienated uh, a big chunk of Europe, the United States, other parts of the world. It's got problems with India, problems with Japan, problems with Vietnam, problems with uh, Taiwan. It's cracked down in Hong Kong. It's interning the Uyghurs. This is not much. This is not a model. I think that a lot of the world will will want to uh, uh, emulate. So, this idea of the inexorable rise of China and so forth, translating greater power into influence, maybe, but I don't. I don't take that as a given. I also don't know whether the United States continues to dial back, if you will. Does Trump? I don't know what's going to happen in November, but regardless, does Trumpism survive Trump? Mm -hmm. Where does the Democratic Party go? Uh, you know, these things tend to go in cycles. We've had other eras of American uh, isolationism. We'll see how this plays out going down the road. Uh, I, I think there's limits to what Europe can accomplish in terms of a global footprint. I think Europe at times has its hands full being Europe, and it lacks some of the dimensions of what it takes to be an effective international actor in terms of certain types of military capabilities, certain types of decision-making. Uh, the demographic challenges will be real in, in, in Europe. No, I think the alternative to the kind of world we've largely benefited from for the last uh, 75 years is probably a more disorderly world. I don't think it's a China-organized world or a Europe-organized world. I think it's a less organized world. Uh, to use the Headley Bull paradigm, less society, more anarchy. My, my, my last book before this one was called The World in Disarray. And I think uh, what we're looking at is if the United States is unwilling to play a, a large role, if the world is unwilling to come together to deal with global challenges, then we're looking at a world in, in growing disarray. And if I had to make a prediction, that is probably the, the future that's most likely with the effect of not just pandemics, this time it's COVID-19, who knows about the next one, but above all, climate change, proliferation, uh, and so forth. That's what that's what worries me. The the second question, I thought there might have been a compliment in there, Peter. I don't know. Maybe I, I misunderstood it. There is a compliment. I think he, he, want, he wants he wants he's he's asking for hints and help. So like kind of how is it that you structured the book? Why okay. why did you structure it the way you did? I think is really the point of the question. Well, 
And I will tell you, Richard, so there's another question that's come in saying they wonder if the book is too, and I think you address this, too American or Eurocentric. And so maybe you could deal with that at the same sure. time. Uh, the reason I, I – let me take a step back. Before I wrote the book, I did I, – I read around, and I, I saw – I'm going to alienate now some of your colleagues. But <laughs> I saw a lot of the textbooks teaching IR students and the rest, and I thought they were way too heavy, way, way, way too heavy on theory. Look, and I've worked at the Pentagon, the State Department, the White House. I've been working on these issues for four decades. I don't find a lot of the theory terribly useful. What I do find uh, useful is either local knowledge, regional knowledge, specific knowledge on issues, or, his or history. So I decided my bias going into this book was to emphasize history, local knowledge, and, and issue knowledge. Uh, I then you know, looked at a lot of other books, couldn't find anything quite like this. I basically wrote what I thought someone needed to know. So I, I basically was almost trying to explain, putting on my explainer's hat. And what I then did, which is some, a version of what I always do when I finish a draft manuscript, is I had all sorts of people read it. And I had everyone read it. The people would be everyone from a college professor of international relations to people who are quote unquote normal people who don't do this for a living. They do other things for a living. They're lawyers, they're doctors, they work in you know, schools, what have you, but they're not international relations, foreign policy experts. And what I wanted it to be was accessible to them. I made the deal with the reader that anytime I used, I referred to something, I would explain it. So if I talked about an agreement, I talked about an issue, I wouldn't assume that anyone had any background or prior knowledge. So I had explained it and sort of say, why does this matter? And this book took much more editing than my normal books. In the sense, I went through a lot of drafts, so I wanted to keep it short. You couldn't have a book with the subtitle, A Brief Introduction, and have it be a 1,000 pages. I wanted to keep it to 300 pages of, of text. And that meant I constantly had to take out, uh, as well as add. There's an old saying by uh, Isaac Beshevik Singer. <laughs> that a writer's, a, writer, a writer's best friend is his waste paper basket. And what I basically tried to do was, was embrace uh, that thought. I don't think, uh, look, uh, one last point to the last question. Yes, there's a certain emphasis on the United States and Europe. The United States, because we've obviously played an enormous role over the last century in the uh, world. Europe, because it was the principal venue of an awful lot of uh, modern uh, history. But there's chapters on every other part of the world. There's histories about other countries, including Japan, China, uh, Russia. Uh, I talk about Africa being the one region of the world where clearly uh, demographic increase will define the, uh, the uh, future. So I tried not to be quote unquote America centric, Eurocentric, other to the more than, if you will, I thought the, the facts or history warranted. Right. There's a question here from Lancaster University about cyberspace and cyberspace and the rise of new technologies such as AI. And I know you pick this up in the book. And there, the question is, how is this likely to affect international politics going forward? And in particular, the U.S.-Chinese relationship. But maybe I, one can broaden that and, and, and think about that more broadly. Look, cyberspace to me is the, um, it's the most recent domain to have emerged is really significant, but almost like 
there's a comparison to nuclear weapons and there's a difference. The, com the, the comparisons when nuclear weapons came around in the 40s and 50s, arms control hadn't really been developed. So nuclear weapons were an unregulated uh, domain. Now, deterrence uh, would work and then arms control and diplomacy kicked in. Cyberspace is far more complicated because it's so decentralized. There's li literally billions of uh, actors and it's far more integrated into the economy. It's not, it's not apart from everything else. So I actually think the intellectual challenge of regulating and structuring cyberspace and cyber behavior is incomparably more difficult. Another problem is there's very few individuals, hopefully you're producing them at LSC, who have the requisite skill set. How many people, think about it, are comfortable being at the frontier of technology and technological change and understand international relations? Not a whole lot in my, in my uh, experience. I certainly don't understand you know, the technology uh, uh, side. So it, it, there's a lot of work to be done there. And I, what worries me is how unstructured and unregulated this uh, space is. My hunch is as you're at the moment and for the future, we're probably moving to a more divided uh, space. Lots of talk about, you know, internets, splinternets and so forth. I don't think there will be a, a widely observed code of uh, behavior. We're seeing that with such things as uh, election interference. We're seeing it with various types of preparations for cyber uh, warfare or actually acts of cyber warfare. Indeed, even things like the laws of war have not caught up with the uh, technology. Cyber can be a weapon of mass destruction. And again, the, the field, I think, is, is, is way behind where the technology is. Things like AI and the rest uh, and robotics and all that, I'd say everything I've just said is true. I think AI and robotics will have big implications for warfare that we're just in internalizing. I also think they'll have enormous implications domestically for every country in terms of displacement. And the, the whole question of the future of work, and I was alluding to it before, a, a significant chunk of existing jobs are going to be eliminated. Now, the good news is new jobs are going to come along, but the skill sets that the new jobs are going to require are going to be more demanding. And I think for every society, there's going to be a real premium on lifelong education because mm -hmm. we, 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 as societies, it's inevitable we're going to be confronted with churn and with short-term unemployment. What we can't afford is the idea of long-term or, or unemployment stocks. That's really corrosive for a society. And what we know is, is that the technology is going to constantly produce churn and the challenge for societies will be to, to keep up with it and above all to figure out ways to reskill workers and to provide uh, transitional assistance when people do go through the edge the inevitable educational uh, process. Yeah, it won't surprise you that we have some kind of Trump related questions. And so um, I'm a question here, um, maybe kind of framing these looking back um, on the Trump years. Um, what, what has surprised you the most about what's unfolded on his watch? what's happened to U.S.-China relations, the strain in transatlantic relations, the hollowing out of the State Department. That certainly didn't happen in previous administrations. I mean, if you had to identify something, and maybe something that has started on his watch, and even if 
he is not reelected, that there's a very strong probability that it'll continue. Let me start with your last point, Peter. One thing that will continue is the friction in U.S.-Chinese relations. Donald Trump may have called China out. He may be crude when he talks about China, Chinese flu and the like. Uh, but U.S.-Chinese relations are going to remain difficult regardless of, what, of who wins this November. We have profound differences with China over human rights, uh, from Hong Kong to the Uyghurs to Chinese society over the South China Sea, Taiwan. This is Xi Jinping's China. China's changed. And American perceptions of China have changed. And these changes in the United States go across the board. So I think anyone who believes that what we're seeing in U.S.-Chinese relations is simply a result of Donald Trump or an American election, they should disabuse themselves uh, uh, of that uh, thought. That's, that's one thing. I think questions about trade. This has been, there's been bipartisan pushback against free trade. So I think some of those concerns will linger. I think what's unique about Donald Trump uh, and that I estimated is the assault on alliances and the assault on uh, global arrangements. That is something uh, qualitatively, qualitatively different that I underestimated. I knew Donald Trump. I briefed him during the campaign. Uh, history will show uh, that uh, if I had any influ influence, it is not obvious. Uh, the and that he, I thought, and I was wrong here, that in the job, he would, in a sense, become more normalized, that a lot of what he yeah. was saying was more, like a lot of people say, to get elected. And I thought when he was faced with the inbox uh, at the White House, he would become slightly more of a traditional president. And he is the first of the post-World War II presidents who doesn't, who's, who's an outlier. Yeah. Everyone from Truman to Obama, you can see that the, the continuity was far greater than any uh, uniqueness for any president. Donald Trump is the first person, I would argue, for whom that's not true. The other thing I got wrong is as he's moved in both foreign policy and domestic policy, violating all these norms of American political behavior, uh, I first came to Washington in the 70s. My first summer in Washington, interestingly enough, when I first worked at the Congress, was 1974. What was going on then? Watergate. And what you had was... Uh, Yes, Mr. Nixon and all he was doing, but what ultimately what prevailed were conservatives and constitutionalists in the Republican Party in the Senate. Right. And what's so different this time around is that that doesn't exist, that the Republican Party of 2020, as opposed to the Republican Party of the mid-1970s, is, is not conservative in any uh, meaningful sense of the, the, the word, is not pushing back, but in mm -hmm. many ways has fallen in line with this president. That, again, is something that I just underestimated. But you and I think everybody else um, think that's been a surprise. Here's an opportunity to be a diplomat. So this is from... <laughs> this is so rare. <laughs> this is from Kevin Ryan. It comes from France. From an American perspective, what influence does Britain have in the post-Brexit world? <laughs> well, if it's the Kevin Ryan I know in France, hi, Kevin. Uh, if it's uh, whatever influence Britain has in the post-Brexit world, it's a hell of a lot less than the influence Britain had in the pre-Brexit yeah. world. Uh, I, I think historians will look at Brexit and scratch their heads. Uh, 
life is tough enough in this age we live in. Um, and what seems to me so odd about Brexit is that it's as if the leadership of this country woke up one day and say, things aren't interesting enough. Let's make it really interesting. Things aren't challenging enough. Let's make it even more challenging. Yeah. And Brexit came along. But I, one of Britain's principal mechanisms or avenues for influence was through the EU. Mm -hmm. That is now obviously going to be gone. If one looks at the weight of Britain militarily, economically, diplomatically, uh, and so forth, as an isolated country, far it's a medium-sized country. So it, no, it loses the multiplier effect in many ways of, of, of Europe. The idea that I'll be able to compensate through a bilateral tie to the United States, mm -hmm. I don't see that. Oh, really? happening yeah, yeah I, I simply think it's not substitutable and 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 won't compensate plus uh and let me put on you know twice i've been involved in the diplomacy of northern ireland i was the u.s envoy to the northern ireland peace process mm -hmm. for three right. years then i was the international uh, mediator uh, i would just simply say that it's i don't take as a given that the united kingdom remains united and i think it's quite possible that if brexit goes ahead if it turns out to be a fairly abrupt uh, departure, I think it's quite possible that over the next generation, Scotland will go its way. And I think also that Northern Ireland will reconsider its union with the UK and instead will will look at uh, joining with, uh, with Ireland. And I think uh, as the demographics of Northern Ireland change, as younger generations come of age. So I think Brexit in some ways is, uh, potentially has pulled the thread on the sweater that has been the United Kingdom. And if that were to happen again, it would dramatically reduce even further the, the weight of uh, what's left of the, the country formerly known as the UK uh, on world affairs if it, if it comes to that. But even if it doesn't come to that, I think the UK is, is considerably diminished in just 30 seconds more, as you've seen. Yeah. The idea that, that this government in Britain can have its cake and eat it. It can do what it wants on Brexit it can act inconsistently with the Good Friday or Belfast Accords and still think it will be able to negotiate a bilateral trade deal with the United States uh, ain't going to happen. And it's not going to happen because it can't get through, that kind of a deal can't get through Congress. I assume that's what Absolutely. you yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, the Americans believe very strongly in the, all the provisions of the Belfast or Good Friday uh, Accords and there'll be precious little uh, sympathy for a British government that is seen as not keeping, uh, not, not keeping to its terms. All right, all right. So there's a, a question here. So this is, you get, now you have to put on your theory hat. Um, so, uh, but I think it goes to the point that you were raising earlier in, in a previous book about apolarity. The question is this, it comes from uh, an IR PhD student um, uh, Jack Basu Mellish, um, is it possible that the end of American leadership in the international system um, will actually lead to a, a greater de degree of stability in the international system, meaning that it will, the system will either become bipolar or it'll become multipolar, that maybe part of the problem here has been unipolarity? What do you think? First, I hope whoever asked the question, like you said, his name was Jack, finish your dissertation, uh, <laughs> get the degree, don't get distracted. That's more important than anything else now I'm going to uh, say. Look, the United States has, 
enjoyed what some would call unipolarity very rarely. Uh, it's had a, it's been kind of first among unequals in many ways, twice, once in the initial years after World War II, basically in the late 40s, early 50s. And actually it engineered its own relative decline uh, with things like the Marshall Plan and so forth. And then the United States enjoyed a, a moment of primacy in the 90s. Uh, with the end of the the Cold War. And since then, you've had, among other things, the rise of China and so on. So the American, you know, America's become absolutely stronger, but relative, its relative position has, has uh, come down. Uh, going forward, look, uh, I just don't see another mechanism for global order without the United States, particularly if you think that, the, unlike the Cold War, where order was largely defined in avoiding nuclear war and avoiding conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union that could escalate. Order in the 21st century is also going to be defined much more in terms of successfully contending with global challenges. So again, we're going to want to avoid U.S.-Russian, U.S.-Chinese, all those kinds of conflicts, if you will, the traditional stuff. But order is also, order is only, any definition of order has to be larger. And I worry that if we end up with a world that's bipolar or what have you, it might be far more difficult to bring about the requisite consensus to deal with global issues. So even if you somehow manage a U.S.-Soviet or U.S.-Chinese relationship, and I would argue, by the way, in both cases, the United States would be far, far wiser to do it with allies as opposed to unilaterally, uh, that doesn't seem to me to be a good mechanism for dealing with with the global challenges that uh, that affect affect us all, you know, I, I I want to pick up on a point that you raised earlier about the U.S. Chinese relationship, and that uh, the relationship is gonna is is on a certain trajectory now that um, it's really not going to matter whether it's a Democrat. Maybe at the margins, it matters whether it's a Democrat or a Republican in the White House but that it's um, uh, that the kind of the, the period of China being a stakeholder and the U.S. and, and, and China working um, kind of together is, is perhaps over. I'm wondering what extent you think the allies are actually going to be on board with the United States. Yeah. Uh, and I say this because it, it, it seems to me, as an observer here in, in Europe, that Europe is not on a, a single page on this. And, and I even think in, in Asia as well, as you know, there's, there's tension between Japan and South Korea. And so uh, just some thoughts about that, like the extent to which the U.S. could actually count on its traditional allies joining it. Look, I think, I think you're right. Uh, in my experience, most countries don't want to choose. They will resist a stark choice. Take a South Korea. It's very much in the U.S. security orbit, but, but its largest economic partner is China. Right. Uh, so I think everybody, I'll say everybody, I think many countries are going to want a situation where they continue to have economic dealings with China. I think they understand that there may have to be some carve-outs uh, on the technology side. Uh -huh. and by the way, we'll be more successful at those carve-outs if we have a technological alternative. It's not, the Huawei model is not a model for anything. You can't, be, uh, you can't beat something with nothing. So we, it is a powerful call for 
U.S. European cooperation mm-hmm. in certain areas where we think it's important to be to offer an alternative to be to be uh, competitive. Uh, but 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 the basic point is I think there's wariness of China in Europe, say on human rights. Uh, given what happened in Hong Kong or with the Uyghurs, I think there's wariness, particularly in Asia, over the South China Sea, over the increasingly muscular behavior of Chinese air and, and naval uh, forces. So I think there'll be a lot of uh, willingness, particularly in Asia, for security cooperation. I think there will be a willingness for a degree of economic, strategic economic or geoeconomic cooperation vis-a-vis China, but there will not be an appetite for divorce mm-hmm. or decoupling. Mm-hmm. And so the United States has got to go about this with a degree of, uh, to use that word I get in trouble for, nuance. It, it can't be all or nothing uh, diplomacy. It's, it's got to be more, more mixed than that. And obviously the devil will be in the details. Mm-hmm. Style and tone will, 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 will matter. I think it can be worked out. And I think, again, uh, I think we are incredibly foolish not in in approaching China so individually. I think, for example, a big strategic mistake was our not getting in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That's a perfect example, not just on economic terms, but strategic terms. And I'm hoping that after the election, the next president, whether it's Trump or Biden, can find a way, almost as the way we got got into NAFTA 2.0 with Mexico and Canada. I'm hoping there can be TPP 2.0 a revised agreement that the United States can join. That's the way I believe to, to deal with China. Five more minutes. And, and I want to do something a little bit different here. We've got a lot of, we have a lot of international relations students on the platform. And, um, you know, um, and I, I think that a lot of them uh, from time to time think about their careers. And I'm wondering what advice you have for students that want to pursue a career in international affairs. I'm not talking about on the, you know, like getting a PhD and becoming a a professor, but just looking back on your own career, are there one or two takeaways for this generation? And Manoush, given your extensive experience working in international institutions, it it would be great to have your thoughts on this as well. And then I will turn it over to you, Manoush, to close it out. Okay. I'll say, um, one or two things, and I'll slightly disagree. Even if you decide that you want to be a professor, you're going to get your PhD or DPhil in international relations, and you want a life in the academy. I still say have a stint in government or international or international organizations or an NGO. You will be better for it. Mm-hmm. I believe that the most policy relevant writing tends, not always, but tends to be written by scholar practitioners people who are not pure academics or pure practitioners. I think there's real advantage. So I would say everybody should have a stint, even if you are persuaded the academy is your life. Now, for those of you who aren't persuaded the academy is your life, then you should definitely have a stint because you'll be, you may find another path and it could be at the World Bank, it could be at the, the IMF, it could be a gazillion NGOs, which are increasingly important. One of the great things in the United States is the permeability of our institutions. So you don't have to be a career person. There's in and outism in the United States, which gives you an uh, opportunity. So I I would encourage, though, everybody to do it. Get exposed and don't worry so much about that it's the perfect job. 
I actually think it's really important to get the experience, try to find a situation where mm -hmm. there's a potential to get mentored, to get exposed, to tool up. I think these ex early exposures are less about what impact you will have on the, on the institution. Mm -hmm. It's more about what impact the institution will have on you. It's part of tooling up. You can give back as you get older. But I think the great thing for an early experience in your 20s or 30s is to be exposed uh, to, to seeing essentially how the sausage is made. <laughs> and, and then it may say, this is, you may say, this is what I want to do for a living. Or mm -hmm. you may say, this is not for me. But whenever you write about these issues, then you will write about them differently than you would have otherwise. That's great. Okay. Thank you. Manoush? I'm going to answer your question uh, as part of my uh, concluding remarks, if I may. I mean, I think, Richard, you've really, uh, you've put your finger on the paradox of the moment, which is that our biggest problems are global, pandemic, climate change, economic recovery, etc. And yet the willingness of nation states to act collectively at the global level has waned massively in the last few years. And so what do you do in that context? How do you, how do you resolve that paradox? And I, I sort of come away with three uh, conclusions. One is that those of us in the education business need to do our job, and your book is a big part of that, of educating people about the nature of the world and the nature of the challenges we face. Two, I think interaction among people from different countries is essential. Uh, all of us have seen how important in our own lives talking about the world with people from other countries is a vital part of our learning and understanding. A place like the LSE, which is the most international major university in the world, 70% of our students are non-UK, um, and you hear 100 languages on campus every day. That rubbing up against each other and having to navigate social relationships, academic debates with people with a very different perspective is an essential underpinning to resolving your paradox. And then third is uh, preserving the institutions. I spent about 20 years of my life in the international system between the World Bank, the IMF, the Department of International Development. And where again, where you're working side by side with people from multiple different countries and you have a Zambian who's the boss of a Russian and a, and a Dutch person and, a, and they work together collectively. And I've seen so often in the international system where, you know, support for the system is really very low at the moment, let's face it, but there are opportunistic moments and preserving the muscle memory of international cooperation is really important at a time like this. Uh, and that even when, you know, political support for internationalism is weak, there are moments when you have to do something. Uh, we saw it with the 2008 financial crisis and, you know, where did you go? You went to the G20, the central banks sorted themselves out, finance ministers got, got on the phone around the world. And it's, I mean, I'm afraid the tragedy of the COVID crisis is we haven't had that happen. Uh, and you can't fight a global pandemic with national policies. We all know that. Um, but at some point, there will be a moment when the penny drops. And I think having people who are educated about the world, who've interacted with people from around the world, and having institutions in place that enable us to collaborate and have the infrastructure of collaboration there and ready for when the penny drops is, uh, is incredibly important for the world. 
And so with that, let me just uh, wrap up and thank you, Richard, for doing a fantastic job of raising these issues, uh, enlightening us and hopefully enlightening many, many other people who will be uh, better global citizens as a result of reading your book. Thank you very thank much. Thank you so much. And thank you all for joining us uh, today. And, uh, and please join us again for future events at the LSE.